Well, um, this morning I, I'd like to do something that we didn't do last year. We just finished studying First uh, Corinthians, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to do that. We're going to be heading into First Peter next, but uh, that will not happen today. Will not happen next week, and I'm pretty sure it's not even going to happen the week after that. Uh, but we'll eventually get to First uh, Peter. So I have some opportunity to talk about some things dear on my heart. Um, and almost we 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 used to do this. I think just about every year. Last year, for whatever reason, we didn't do this. Um, but that is to talk about the state of the church. Now, by that I mean the church on the whole. Um, I suppose we could talk about our church here, um, and you know, particular things that way. But uh, when we talk about the church, we we can mean our our particular church, but we can also mean the church on the whole. The you have the particular church, but you also have the church what you could call visible, the church visible, and then there's the invisible. Talking about what the world sees is the visible church, how the church is presented, you know, all around the globe. I believe as you look about at at the church, the visible church, if there's a word that I would use to describe her, it is the word vulnerable. The church today is in a real vulnerable spot. And I believe like never before, she is open to be attacked. In Acts 20, he talks about uh, there will be wolves among you. In um, First Peter, we're going to learn that... Um, he calls for the church to be careful, to stand firm. And he gets to Second Peter and he says, watch out for those false prophets around you. And then you get to Jude and he says, they've snuck in and they're here. They're here. We live in an age of polarization in the church. And you know, COVID came around and I don't believe COVID did anything to us. It it exposed something that was already here. It exposed where the church was, what she valued, where the, where the weak spots are. You know, at that same time, you had issues like race and the CRT movement and gender identity and political themes like abortion and the role of government inside the church. When it hit the church, it really exposed something massive that I believe we need to address right here at GBC. Two things. And here they are. That is what it is that we believe about the gospel. And second, what the church should be doing. In other words, how does the church work even? Are we clear about how the church op- should operate, how it works. Did you come into this building here and have a certain thought about how the church works and operates that's based on you or your experiences, or are you clear about what the Lord's directives are 
for you. Those are the two things I'd like to address. In other words, just how fortified is the church to withstand attacks from the world in those two areas? I mean, is the government going to say something that will make us change how our, how the church operates and works? And what about the gospel that we believe in? As I was thinking about that, I was drawn to the pastoral letters from Paul to two men that he discipled, Timothy and Titus. And so it will help you to turn there, if you could. And uh, you know, you say, where? I don't know. I, <laughs> we're going to be all over uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But if you're in there, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be fine. Now, one of the things that we like to do yearly, as I mentioned, is to go back to the core for this church, okay? And, uh, to, you know, to talk about the rock-solid belief that we stand on. So what is that core? What is the rock-solid belief? What, what would you say, if somebody were to ask you, hey, tell me a little bit about Grace Bible Church. What is Grace Bible Church in terms of, like, like what it believes and what it's connected to? You could say this. It is the same one that Luther and Calvin stood on, that is, the doctrines of grace. This is the glue that holds us together. These are, this is the core of, of what makes us what we are. Now, the gospel is how a person gets into the church, the Lord's church. We talked about the visible church, but we can also talk about the invisible one. See, the visible one is the one that has an address and an area code and a zip code and it has structure and it has organization and it has what Matthew 13 calls wheat and tares in it. That is that people, there are people that are true believers and people that are not genuine believers and they all can be under the same roof and you look out and you can't tell and you know this is Grace Bible Church and you might be able to look at a church directory and see names and you can look out and see people and that's the visible church and we have no idea really who's a real Christian from the standpoint of really being able to see what's in the heart you can see the fruit by your fruit, Matthew 7, he says, you shall be known. But really, only God knows that, right? But then you have the invisible church. And that's the one that has every single true believer in Jesus Christ is in that one. We call it invisible because only God knows who is truly a part of that one. And that's the one that matters, see. That's why we can call the church an organism. See, how do you know something is alive? Let's throw that out there. How do you know that something is alive? Well, you see it move, right? There's movement. But the reason that it moves is because of the things that you can't see. 
there's stuff, you know, going on beneath the surface that is, you know, connected to uh, life that, that actually that determines life. And so when we say that the gospel is the only way a person gets into the church, that is what we mean. That is the first thing that we're going to look at. How we get into the church. The gospel of sovereign grace. You know, it's interesting to me in First Corinthians 12, he says, with regards to the members, that it is the Lord that puts those members actually into the church. And it says, in fact, it has, he uses the phrase, just as he desired. So there's no accidents. There's no, there are no coincidences. You say, yeah, I stumbled upon this church. You might have thought you stumbled, but the Lord was guiding every step of that stumbling way. And we praise him for that. So we're going to look at the gospel of sovereign grace. And after we do that, we'll look at what the church does, its, its function, how, you know, what, it, what, it, what, what does it look like when it works? How does it work? And there's no better place to learn about the church in both ways than the pastoral letters. Now, Paul, here's Paul, and he wrote all uh, three of these pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus. And he did this, and these were people that they were, I guess you could call them protégés or, or uh, those that were, to, uh, his, those that he discipled, the ones that he was going to hand the baton to, to say, here, you do it. You go get it. Um, he he operated as mentor, and, and they were uh, they were the ones that he were, they were the trainees, if you will. Timothy and Titus, and and he and what he did when he wrote to them is he he wrote to encourage them to reinforce godly leadership in the church, to reinforce the support for the church to be strengthened. He said, "Hey, I want you to have strong churches. Here's how you do it." Talk about these things. In fact, they were supposed to... It's interesting to me that Paul wrote these letters to these two people, but they were then to take their letter and turn around and read it to the church. So in a sense, even though it's to them personally, it's really to the whole church. Now the church today is being challenged at that place with regards to godly leadership and strength. And I ask the question that I suppose I think that Timothy and Titus would have understood was the um, watermark question that was behind what was in the front. And that is, where are the leaders? The godly ones, where are they? These are letters to guys that Paul trained for the ministry. Men sent out to churches, to pastor, to shepherd. But he didn't send them out to just be these guys that were the head guys and to do everything. They were to reproduce themselves in others. These are... um, 
men that he wants to raise up, that they all might fortify the church. Paul has an eye to what's out there that could hurt the church. That's why he wrote these letters. Jesus said he would build the church and that the gates of hell would not harm the church because Jesus is protecting it. But how does he do that? Listen, through trained men like Timothy and Titus. And he would do that through whoever would be trained here at Grace Bible Church. All right, so how was the church, you keep talking about being attacked. How was the church being attacked back then? That's what, I want to start at that place. So let's take a look at this in seven ways. The church was being attacked back then in seven ways. And this is not even our outline for this morning, so all right? So, I mean, but I got to give them to you because I told you, it's in my heart. So you're going to wish I wouldn't go on vacations anymore. I mean, um, here we go. I, yeah, I want to. Com- I want you to compare, by the way, that the, this kind of attack that I'm about to share with you to the church today, and even really to, to GBC. Now, these are the seven challengers to the church, and I say challengers because they're put in. He kind of describes them as um, being headed by certain people. So it's not just concepts, but it's actually people that are behind these challenges. All right, look at 1 Timothy 1.3. The first one, certain men that teach strange doctrine. Certain men that teach strange doctrine. Paul says, I urge you to stay at this church and instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. People in the church wanting to be leaders, wanting to be, verse 7, teachers of the law, experts in the eyes of others. That's how they want to be seen. And their first line of attack is doctrine. Doctrine. Go after the things that people believe. Challenge them. The things the church teaches and stands on from Scripture. Notice the word strange. Out of the normal. Put a twist on things. Put a little shine on something. Make things just a little different. It is in vogue today to be just a little different. Don't give us what we've always heard. Give us something that has flavor. Something that has a, a something that's, that feels contemporary or modern. Those are the old things we've always heard. We need something new. He says, beware of people that say, here's a new perspective. Here's a new gospel. Here's a new doctrine. We have missed this for all these years. And I'm here to help you see it now finally the right way. Beware of that. And I think that's good for us as a church. And and you know, as we look over the last five to really eight years here in this church body, we have had a bit of that. We've seen some of that come right through our front doors. And whether they want us to embrace the new perspective on Paul or whatever, 
we have to beware. That's the first challenger. Second challenger. And I'm just taking this from what Paul wrote. No axe to grind or anything like that. This is just what Paul said. Rebellious women that resist God's design. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. These are women that struggle with being mothers who raise children to know Christ by faith, to love others, to be full of self-control. They struggle trying to get their kids to be like that. They get tired of it, tired of being in the home, tired of working there. I want to do something different. He says, beware of that. The church is going to be attacked at that place. It's not not shocking to me that when um, you look a little bit deeper at the CRT movement and the race movement of, you know, that they're calling us to, If you go a little deeper, what you find are many, many, many homes that have been absolutely divided by irresponsible men that have shirked their duties to lead their homes and to really be men. And you have so many single women raising children, trying to do their best to take care of Families that are broken, it's everywhere. And so when he talks about rebellious women that resist God's design, I think there's a bit of an understanding that part of the reason why they even want to do that is because you have men that don't lead, and it's a big problem. You have men that don't lead in the home, and then the response to it, And together it's a massive struggle. And here in First Timothy 2, you have these women that were struggling with receiving teaching from the Word, and they struggle with authority. And so the first challenge is doctrine, and the second one you could say is the challenge of authority. Being able to come under authority. Godly authority. Biblical authority. Not authoritative, domineering people. Those people are wrong. But God-designed authority. Third group of challengers to the church is what you could call cancerous church rejects that reject the faith. He said, boy, that sounds harsh. Church rejects? Well, it's literally what he says. That's what he calls them here. Look at 4. 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. They're going to, it says, reject the faith. It's going to happen. And they're going to forbid things. You're going to have people that don't believe this stuff anymore. Verse 2 calls them hypocrites. They, they have seared their own conscience like with a branding iron, it says here. Now, 
Why does he say it that way? They have seared their conscience. Why does he say it that way? I want you to think about this with me for a moment. The only way to sear a conscience is to first have something in there to sear. You understand that? These are not empty-headed people. These are not people that are kind of had nothing. These are people that first were taught and now have become, quote, smarter. And they've seared their conscience. These are people that already have knowledge. They, they know the Bible. They know doctrine. Notice what they attack. Verse 3, marriage and food. You say, well, this is a little bizarre. I mean, they want to abstain, abstain from marriage and eat certain foods. What is this? Well, if we were going through First Timothy, I would tell you a bit of the details of this, but let me just say this. These are two things that God created to enjoy, to know Him and be connected. Things that we can be satisfied with in life for our joy and they will twist and pervert. And what you need to see here is that they are trying to change the way we look at things like marriage. In the way we look at things like something as basic as eating food, taking pleasure, the way we take pleasure in the basic things of life that make the statement that God is creator. In other words, the real attack is on God as creator. They don't like the system that God has created. That's where the attack is. They think, that, they think well, I would have done it better. And they, they struggle with doctrine. They struggle with authority. They struggle with God himself. The fourth challengers. Go to chapter 6. Conceited wanderers that distort love. Conceited wanderers that distort love. Chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, notice what they don't agree with, two things, the words of Jesus, that is the New Testament, and second, what godliness is. They don't don't agree with that. Why? Verse 4 tells us, because they're conceited. What's a conceited person? It's a person who thinks super high about himself and super low about anybody else. And by the way, in that anybody else category, God. Okay? And he says here, they just want to argue Verse 6, they're not content. And here's the distortion of love. They love money. They're trying to get you and I to think it's okay to love all kinds of things and people, but especially money. 
By the way, he never says that money is the root of evil. He says the love of it is. And what you see here is a love for things more than people. And all of this creates a discontented life. And these are people that love things more than Christ and His Word. And you can spot, by the way, people that love things more than Christ and His Word. Say, how? Because they love to argue about anything. Verse 5, there's constant friction with them. Verses 6 through 9, they're never content. They redefine love. And love to them is about getting rich. It's about being well off. It's being set for life. And so that's a challenge to the church. There's a fifth challenger, and we can call this one dangerous deceivers that prowl but are powerless. Dangerous deceivers that prowl but are powerless. Uh, There's a reason why I I gave this title, and you'll see it there in 2 Timothy 3. So turn to 2 Timothy 3, right here in the pastoral letters. There will be people in the church that, verse 5, hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, what is that? Well, think about it. They hold to a form. They have the outline. They have the look. Oh, they look together. They look put together. But they deny the power, the real power for godliness. He says, avoid such men as as these. What's that mean? They try to convince you that they're godly people, that they're God's people, but they have no power against their lusts. That's what these people are. And that's why verse 6 says they try to get in the households and captivate weak women. They find the women that are led on by various impulses and they, and they take advantage of them. And verse 13 calls them imposters. So that's a challenge. Those, are, those people are challengers to the church that Paul says to Timothy, you got to address this. As a pastor, you need to see this. You need to help the church with this. Sixth challenger. Professing Christians that stir up conflict in homes for gain. Professing Christians that stir up conflict in homes for gain. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting Whole families. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sort of gain. To get money. Verse 16. They profess to know God. But by their deeds. They deny Him. And so you'll have people that make a profession that they're Christians. But they upset families. They try to break up families. Like never before, the nuclear family is being destroyed today. 
I'll give you something. You want to help take care of our, decrease our welfare system? Call for men to stay in their homes and take care of their wife and take care of their children. Quit abandoning them. More divorces and homes exist today where there are no strong dads to lead. The, the, the statistics are staggering. Seventh challenger, and let's call these people factious disputers that aim to undo the church with controversy. Factious disputers that aim to undo the church with controversy. Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversies, disputes about the law, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. These are people who will try to divide the church. They will try to get the church to have more diversity in its views. To appeal to a greater amount of people with wider views on things. We just need to stretch it out, man. we got to be real open to things. And it's amazing that when they say we've got to be open to things, but you then keep your Bible in front of you. You say, well, Jesus said enter the narrow door, though. Didn't he say narrow door? It doesn't sound like open it up. It sounds like actually shrink it up. He said broad is the road that, and wide is that road that leads to destruction. Now you put all that together and Paul tells both of these pastors, guys, the church is going to be attacked this way. Doctrine, authority, people that try to convince you that Christianity is wrong, deniers of the faith, people that promote prosperity from this world, people that pretend to be Christian but look to take advantage of weak believers, people that will try to divide homes, that will try to divide the whole church. Now, having said all of that, What message can Paul give the church to encourage it? What message can Timothy and Titus give the church? Two messages. You need to remember two things, guys. If you're going to be ready for the attack on the church, you've got to know these. First of all, remember how the gospel works. Secondly, remember how the church works. This morning, how the gospel of sovereign grace works. We start with the doctrines of grace. We start by remembering how people get into the church. Five points. Now sometimes these five points are called the five points of Calvinism. Okay? Just want to throw that out there. Now for 1,500 years after the apostles, the invisible church believed certain things about the gospel. Certain things about how salvation works, how a person actually gets into God's kingdom and therefore right into the church. But then the Roman Catholic Church came around and taught that a person isn't saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He said, you have to fulfill certain sacraments and do certain works to attach your faith and then God will accept you. 
And so a couple of guys named Martin Luther and John Calvin, and there were others like Zwingli and Martin Bucer. They came around and said, not so fast, church. That's not the gospel. And they took the church back to Romans and said, Paul's gospel is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And it is not on the basis of any deeds that you have done. Catholic Church. Then a hundred years later, a second movement came around, led by a group called the Remonstrants. The Remonstrants. And they said that man's free will is the centerpiece and the most important thing when it comes to the gospel. In fact... What they said were five things about the gospel. Let me give them to you. Five things that the remonstrants said about the gospel. So first you had the attack with the Catholic Church, and then you have this other one with the remonstrants. And they said this, first of all, yes, man is a sinner, but every man has a spark of grace in him, a little good in him, you know, to make him turn to God for salvation. So he has sin, but he also has spark of good. Sin and spark of good. Second, they taught God's choice of who gets saved is conditional. It's conditional. It is dependent on the sinner doing something. It is dependent on the sinner choosing him. That is, the picture is this, that God waits for the sinner to choose him. He's out there and he's up there in the heavens and and he's just got his arms open wide and he's saying, oh, if only you would pick me. And so God waits. Thirdly, they taught that the atonement of Jesus on the cross when he died is unlimited and therefore makes every person a potential believer. Every person a potential believer. Now, having said that, they go a little bit further than that. They would say that the blood of the cross then has the potential to save people that There's great possibility there, they would say. Fourth, they taught that the grace that God saves us with, that it can be resisted. You know, it's as though there's this battle that's going on, and over here you have God, and He's trying and so wanting to save people, but over here you have people that are just resisting Him and telling Him no, and, and so there's this power struggle. And God is just always losing and we have to help God to find a way to get him to win. Salvation can be rejected then when the Lord offers it to you. I mean, after all, if it is all about your will, then you have the power to reject God, don't you, in that system? To say no to him, to resist him. And then fifth, they taught that when a person gets saved, he must maintain his salvation in faithfulness 
or he could lose it all. Tragic. He could sin too many times and then forfeit salvation. They believe people like Judas and others were believers who forfeited their salvation. They lost it because they just couldn't hang on to it. They just finally gave in. Let me say it a different way. They failed. Just failed. And I tell you, if that really was the picture of somebody like Judas, I would have expected the church to talk about Judas that way. Remember when Judas, he, he, what a failure. That guy failed. Don't be like Judas. Don't be, don't fail. The churches all around were hearing this teaching and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. That's not right. That's not Luther and Calvin. That's not Augustine. That's not the apostles. That's not what Paul taught Timothy and Titus. And so what happened is in the 1600s, a collection of a bunch of pastors, and I mean a bunch of pastors, over a hundred of them, came together from all over the place and to meet up with what was called the Synod of Dort. And what they did in doing that is they did what every group of responsible shepherds in the church should do. And they came up with a way to guard the church, to protect the church. And they called these the five points of Calvinism. By the way, this was 100 years after Calvin lived he, 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 didn't, he didn't even know about the five points of Calvinism. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, John Calvin. He's like, well, he didn't know. He didn't know. He had no clue, you know. They were responding to an attack on the church. And beloved, if, if we are going to fortify GBC against that kind of attack, we need to remember how the gospel of sovereign grace Works Now, you can see it running all the way through the pastoral letters. So make sure you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 1 for the first point. Point number 1, the requirement for the gospel. Let's call point number 1, the requirement for the gospel. Now, when I say that, I'm asking this question. What is the need for the gospel? Is there a need for the gospel Why do we need a gospel of sovereign grace where God does the work and gets all credit for your salvation? Why do we need it? This is what they call total depravity. The gospel is required. We we have to have a gospel of sovereign grace. Why? Listen, because total depravity is a true principle. You say, well, what is total depravity? It is this, that man was born in a state of sin that made him corrupt and made him unable to glorify God with righteous, good deeds. It means that man was born depraved in thought. 
Do you notice that you did not have to create the evil in your brain? You were wired that way, right? I mean, who taught your children how to be selfish? You say, well, yeah, my husband and I always argue about that, you know? It's your fault, you know? Who taught them that? Nobody had to. <laughs> the sad part of that is they, nobody did, and they learned how to get, do it better by watching you and me, right? I mean, total depravity is to be depraved of thought in word and deed and direction. When we say that man is totally depraved, what we mean by that is that all his life is governed by this principle of sin. The dominion, this this rule, that that is you could say that sin rules him. Romans 6 describes sin as a sovereign, as a master. And even more than all of that, the existence of this principle of sin comes with a penalty, death. God told Adam in Genesis 2, the day that you sin, you shall die. Literally, he said, dying, you'll die. That's how the Hebrew actually literally reads. In other words, the clock starts when you sin, Adam, to your death day. But even worse, not only physical death, but you are dead spiritually. Ephesians 2.1 says you and I are dead in our sins. And what that means is that we're lifeless to obey God. We don't have any power to obey Him. We are lifeless to love Him. We are lifeless to go where He wants us to go. We're lifeless against selfishness. Against Satan. In fact, did you know that your rule book is Satan's game plan? Before you came to Christ? That was your rule book. You know, did you know that Satan's rules are set on course by this world? The world just simply carries out those rules. And so you listen to the world. I mean, you valued, before you were a Christian, you valued the world's opinions. Why? Because you're totally depraved. That's why. That's the explanation to it all. It doesn't mean, by the way, you're as bad as you could be. It means, though, that every direction about you is governed by sin. Now, did Paul believe that? I mean, did he teach Timothy and Titus that? Well, look at it for yourself. Start in verse 12. Now, here's a short version of Paul's testimony. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. Now, stop there when he says that. He has strengthened me. Paul says this. He says, salvation starts with understanding you have it, not because of your own strength but because of Jesus. See? Verse 12, He put me into service. I serve because He did this. Verse 13, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Paul says, I can't believe Jesus gave me strength to be saved so that I might serve Him. I can't believe it. I can't believe it because I was against him. I hated him. 
Verse 13, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says, man, I didn't, I didn't realize I was in the state of unbelief. Now, by the way, that's another way of saying total depravity. The state of unbelief. You know, for the unbeliever, it's like, oh man, I mean, they have all these sins and everything, right? And so, you realize that when you are an unbeliever, think about your worst sin. Don't take too long, probably depress you. Think about your worst sin. Do you realize that if you don't say unbelief, you haven't, you haven't said it? Your worst sin was unbelief. So, oh no, there was this one time where I did this other thing and this poor little kid when he was six years old and I, yeah, I did that and I took his money and he did all this kind of stuff to him and boy, terrible. Yeah, but that wasn't the, that wasn't the worst sin. The worst sin is unbelief. Paul says, I was in a state of unbelief. And that's another way of saying total depravity. It, it was something he was in, by the way. In. Every believer is in that. Is in unbelief. I mean, that is your biggest problem. You can't see. You don't know. You have no power to do anything about it. And, and, and you know, he had to strengthen you first, right? Like Paul. He said, are you sure that's really what he's saying? Yeah, look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found where? In Christ Jesus. See that? He didn't find it in himself. Where did Paul find faith? In himself? No. It was found in Christ Jesus. Listen, he gave it to him. Do you realize that faith is a donation? He gave it to you. It's a gift. Have it for a while. For how long? Till you can see me in heaven. Now look at verse 15. And maybe it will make more sense to you. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He says, I am the chief of sinners. Paul, come on, man. Don't be so hard on yourself. You got to learn how to um, forgive yourself and respect yourself. Maybe give yourself a hug. Maybe, uh, you know... Focus on the positives and the good things. You're too negative, Paul. He's, yeah, but I never would have found faith in Christ Jesus if I wasn't. Paul says, no, I mean, I understand now that I, I was the chief. I was in unbelief. I was also in a state of sin. I mean, no one was a bigger sinner than me. And that's what he believed. And you know, beloved, that's what all sinners believed when they get saved. I'll never forget the moment. I was at Camp Cross. I heard the gospel. In fact, I'm thankful my brother's here this morning because that was, I saw it in his life. I saw, I heard the words. And then at Camp Cross, a guy named Toby sharing the word. And I just walked away from that message 
inside. I'm a sinner. In fact, I think I'm the worst. There's nobody worse than me. And I went out for a walk. And I thank God for Christ Jesus. Luke 18, Jesus told the parable about the tax collector who was next to a Pharisee in church. And that Pharisee felt very proud of himself. He was very religious. But the tax collector stood some distance away. Distance away. I can't even get close, man. I mean, I'm not. I don't know. I'm just so bad. I, here, all the good guys are at the front. They should all be at the front, close to the you know, Lord. I'm, I'm a backseat guy because I just stink, this guy said. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He called himself the sinner in the Greek. The sinner. There is nobody who's the sinner. There's only room for one. The sinner. I'm him. In other words, no one is worse than I am. He was seeing it right. How did he see that that way? Total depravity. He realized there's nothing good in him, about him, about his direction in life. You say, did Jesus think that was okay? Did he tell him, calm down? Hey man, come on. You know, don't be so bad. Don't be so hard on yourself. Nobody can be really that bad. Every, my message is to come and let everybody know, hey, thumbs up everybody. It's okay. You know, pats on the back. No. Jesus didn't say that. He said this. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. You know the word justified there literally is mercied. Propitiated. He went to his home all mercyed up. That's what happened. That's literally what the word says. He got mercyed. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Does the Bible really say that we're unable to do good without it being touched by this depravity called sin? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. Romans 3.9. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That seems pretty airtight. How many times does he have to say none and no one and all that? You know, as a parent, you always tell your kids, quit using superlatives, right? I mean, maybe you don't. We always felt the need to do that. It's like, you know, the always and never and, you know, come on, you know. I'm always, you know, this or that. Well, hang on here, you know. But you know what here? It's what Paul does. None. No one. Scripture, there's no exaggeration in Scripture. So what this point says is that we cannot save ourselves. In fact, we aren't even looking to be saved. We're not interested. Psalm 51.5, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner. Total, total depravity means we are powerless to turn to God for salvation. And we don't even see our need for it. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, you don't even understand your own heart. 
Total depravity has to do with man's inability. It has to do with man not being able to, to even understand good. More than that, total depravity has to do with man's desires. Listen, he can't even desire the good that he needs. And when I say that, I mean God's kind of good. The Arminian Gospel, which is the Remonstrance Gospel, it says that man is like a person bobbing in the water without a life jacket. He's a... He might drown. So what does he need? He needs that little life ring thing that you throw out. So all right, grab hold on it. Come on. Get yourself up here. Let's go. Do something about this. That's that spark of good that they teach. He needs a little help. He needs someone to throw him out of line. A preserver. So that he can keep himself afloat in life. Something to help him keep his head up long enough to get rescued by Jesus. Listen, that's not the biblical gospel. The gospel of sovereign grace says man is like a person on the bottom of the ocean, drowned with a massive rock, having crushed him with its full weight to keep you on the bottom of the ocean, dead, and you're not coming back up. You cannot lift it. You can't get it off you. And sin has just suffocated you and killed you. In other words, to save a person like that would not take a little ring thing throughout the water, like preserver thing. It would take a miracle. It would take a resurrection. I mean, the Arminian picture is a man sleeping. The gospel of sovereign grace picture is a man needing the miracle of life because he's just like Lazarus. He's dead. He needs God to say, Lazarus, come forth. Total depravity helps us understand there's no interest in obeying the Lord. There's no interest in loving Christ. There's no interest in seeking Him like a dying man from thirst. There's no interest in fellowship with the Lord's people. That's how the gospel of sovereign grace first works. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I stink. I'm, I'm, I'm a dead man. I don't see anything good on the inside that God will be impressed with. Paul says, I'm a bad man. I'm on the naughty list, right? I'm that guy. You say, Paul, what did you do? Read Philippians 3, 2 through 6. He was the best Jew that ever lived. What was his crime? Self-righteousness. Loving self. That kind of person doesn't choose God. That kind of person wouldn't choose God couldn't choose God. Doesn't choose salvation. So, you need point number two. And let's call this point the freeness of the gospel. The freeness of the gospel. What do we mean by the freeness of the gospel? This. 
that here you have all humanity, totally depraved, none are good, none seek God. Is that a problem? Well, it is for you and me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm left with saying, okay, well then how can a man be saved? Job 9.1, how can a man be righteous before God? Well, God has to initiate it then. If If no human can save themselves... God has to initiate. God has to be the one that does. I mean, if I can do nothing, then it is dependent on God to do something, right? Now, this is the point that says the gospel works because of unconditional election. Unconditional election means God is free to choose whom he wants to save. Now, think about that. All people are guilty with sin. All are going to hell, right? God chose some from humanity to save, to display His love and glory to all humanity. And He's totally free to do that. Why? Why is God free to do that? It's so simple. Because He made Everything. That is why in Revelation 4.11, when it shows us the picture of the saints in heaven, they're bowing down and they're saying, Worthy are you, for you have created. In other words, they connect that you're worthy of this, of us praising you for salvation, because you made everything and you're the boss and you make the rules and we praise you for that. And by the way, because it is a demonstration of His love, I'm going to show you next week the connection to election in the love of God. It's incredible. He is the one with the grand plan, see? And that includes our salvation. And if man is spiritually dead, then he's, he, he will never turn to God for salvation in Christ, Right? Now look for a moment at 2 Timothy 1, 9. You can see this. We're just going to see a few verses and then close it up here. Back it up actually to verse 8. Look, at, it says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the, according to the power of God. Now watch this. He's going to tell them something about this gospel that we suffer for. This testimony of Jesus and of Paul, the same testimony that we all have, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Stop there. The power of God saved us in the gospel, he says. This is Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God to salvation. God's power to save is the gospel. Notice how it works. He called us with a holy calling. Now what does calling mean? What does it mean to be called by God? There are two callings when it comes to the gospel. The first is what you could call a general or external call. It is the Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay. This is just simply giving people the gospel. This is what preaching does. Giving people, it's explaining how a person can become set free from his sins. Explaining the gospel, okay? The second kind of call is an internal one. That's the kind of call 
that gets into your heart to open your eyes when a guy like Toby, by the way, Toby was this big old weightlifter kind of guy. When a guy like Toby says, here's the gospel, and I'm saying to myself, man, that sounds just like what my brother shared with me. It sounds just like what Alan Springfield shared with me. And it sounds just like what, and I just go down the line, all these people, well, why didn't I believe it back then? I don't know. Calling. This is the kind that gets your heart to open, to your eyes to see that you need Christ, to make you see you're a sinner in need of Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. In verse 26, he told you, he, excuse me, he told this, this to the skeptical Jew. Listen to this. He told the skeptical Jews gathered around him, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. He didn't say, you don't believe because, man, you're just such bad people. Well, they, they are that. He said, you're not of my sheep. I mean, hearing the voice of Jesus is believing in Him. The call is when a person hears the voice of Christ in his heart. Not an audible one, but one that turns him to Jesus Christ for salvation. Verse 9. This call was according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, when was that? This phrase here, literally in in the Greek, is before times eternal. Before there was any measurement of time in eternity. Hey, when was that? Uh, A long time ago. (laughs) Before creation. He said, wait. So God granted us this call to His grace before there was time? In eternity past? How? Ephesians 1 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 1 9 is the same thing before times eternal. Verse 10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who by the appearing abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection took away the penalty in our death and brought us life through this gospel. In other words, God chose the ones he wanted to save before he made the world. And then he activated that plan when Jesus died on the cross. talking about God choosing the ones he wanted to save. You say, are, are you sure that that's how he is saying this? Yeah, look at the second uh, look at Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with an eternal glory. That's pretty, that's pretty clear, right? And Paul says, I endure all sorts of suffering when I preach. 
For the sake of the chosen. Because I want the chosen to believe. Who's the chosen? The ones from chapter 1 verse 9 in Ephesians 1 4. He said, did God look down the road to see who would choose him? If God did that, wouldn't that make man sovereign and not God? Is man sovereign? Wouldn't that make our will greater than God's? Wouldn't that make his plan dependent on our plan? On our choice? Doesn't it? I mean, what we're talking about here is not man's sovereign free will. We're talking about the freeness of God's will to choose. Now, I have planned to get through this whole point on how we can get to the church. And what's clear, I'm not going to do that. Um, But I did give you these last two points. Now as we close, what does all this mean for these churches and these dear pastors that Paul wrote to? What does um, the truth about total depravity and unconditional election mean for them? You need the gospel. Why? Because you're dead in your sins. And you would never believe on your own and in your own power with your own wisdom. It would never lead you to a holy God, to a sovereign God. I mean, he reminds them of how free God is in the gospel that he chose the ones he wants to save. Now listen, why would a message like this encourage those pastors? I will tell you. Because it frees them to just go out and preach the gospel. And live it out with no worry about who's going to come. Does it break your heart when they don't? Yes. But you still tell them. And I'll tell you, it helps me to not have to sugarcoat it. It helps us all to not have to manipulate. There's no need for you to sell the gospel. You don't have to make it be a salesman. God has this plan and here's what he needs in this plan. Faithfulness. People that do what they do because they love him and they want to share. Here's what you do with a gospel like this. Last two verses in 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. O Timothy... Guard what has been entrusted to you, what's been entrusted to him. This gospel of sovereign grace. Guard it. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. He says, guard it. Know it, follow it, love it, repeat it, remind each other about it, understand it, and mostly guard it. Now, that's what we're doing today. 
And we're going to do it some more next Lord's Day. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, your grace, your kindness to us. The Romans tells us, led us to repentance. We would not be interested in repenting, Lord, if you didn't first work that kindness into our hearts. Thank you for that, Father. And I pray for everyone here. If there's anyone that just is unsure and hears this and is just wondering, I pray, Lord, you would uh, draw them to you, lead them to you, and help them to see you, even here this morning. We love you and praise you, and we want to just lift you up and glorify you and exalt you for a gospel of sovereign grace like this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.